0: Symphonies are a lot of work to write, said William Walton. One has to have something really appalling happen to one that lets loose the fount of inspiration. Walton's Symphony No. 1 had its first complete performance in November 1935, it would be no exaggeration to say that it was a sensation. It made the front pages in several British papers, with headlines like, Historic Night for British Music. The older British composer, John Ireland, was moved to this, not so much glowing as dazzling tribute. This is the work of a true master. It has established you as the most vital and original genius in Europe. No one but a bloody fool could possibly fail to see this. Well, today I don't think there are many who would claim that Walton was the most vital and original genius in Europe in the 1930s, but I don't think John Ireland was so very far out. The first symphony certainly is vital and original, possibly more so than anything else Walton ever wrote. Where else, in his output, do you find music as alive and ferociously single-minded as this? And where else did Walton's romantically generous lyricism acquire a more abrasive modernist edge? Naturally, once people had got over the initial impact, questions began to be asked. Where had all this volcanic, impassioned urgency come from? This actually wasn't the first time in 1935 that a new British symphony had stunned audiences and inspired critics and fellow musicians to raptures. Back in April, large numbers had turned up to hear a new symphony by a senior British composer already well into his sixties, the fourth symphony by Rafe Vaughan Williams. It was generally acknowledged that Vaughan Williams had moved on since the Lark ascending and the Talis Fantasia. But it seems nobody was expecting anything quite like this. Inevitably, comparisons were drawn. Had Vaughan Williams and Walton both sensed something in the air? Things on the continent were getting more and more troubled in 1935, Spain was boiling up towards civil war, fascism was turning ugly in Italy and uglier still in Germany. Publicly, Vaughan Williams rejected attempts to interpret his fourth symphony as a reflection of troubled times. Walton, however, in private, was prepared to concede that those troubled times had left their mark. He wrote to the conductor Hamilton Harty, who commissioned the symphony and who often had to prod Walton to keep going. I must say, Walton writes, that I think it's almost hopeless for anyone to produce anything in any of the arts these days. It's practically impossible to get away from the general feeling of hopelessness and chaos which exists everywhere, however one may try. So you mustn't think I'm an exception. Hopelessness and chaos. You don't have to search far in Walton's first symphony to find music that does reflect horrified desperation. It seems, however, that there was something more personal, obsessing Walton at the time. He was struggling with his first symphony, or at least with the first three movements which occupied him between 1931 and 1934. Years later he told a friend, you know all my pieces are really about girls, no doubt with a light laugh to show that he didn't take himself too seriously, which is after all the ultimate crime for an Englishman or woman. But at the time, Walton was embroiled in, and then emerging bruised from, perhaps the most devastating love affair of his life. Her name is enshrined in the dedication of the symphony to the Baroness Imma Duenberg. Imma had left Walton in 1933 for a Hungarian doctor. Apparently, this was partly because Walton's creative struggles with the symphony were interfering with his performance as a lover. But there is real poison in that dedication, which is made explicit in the marking of the second movement, presto con malizia, with malice, not that that isn't clear enough in the music. Later on, after the scherzo's terrific purgation of, as Walton put it, jealousy and hatred all mixed up with love, comes a third movement which is equally clear in its mixture of tender, nostalgic memory, the what-if element and acute, even traumatic grief. So there's a deeply personal agenda here. At the same time, though, the First Symphony is proof that it's often by digging deep into the personal that we also find the universal, the kind of music that speaks to many in different situations. And what's also striking about the First Symphony, as people like John Ireland sensed, is its superb control of its resources. The beginning is truly Beethoven-like in the way so much seems to grow from so little. A hushed drum roll establishes the tonic note, the tonal bass, B-flat. Horns build up a harmony. The rhythmic kick on strings. And this tiny but pregnant motif on oboe. Momentum, the driving power of this music is elemental. The power and the economy of means in this music are interrelated. So much grows from that harmonic motif on the horns, the rhythmic figure on the violins, and that tiny scrap of an oboe tune. And underneath that sustained timpani B flat, it just doesn't seem to want to let go of its hold. You can feel the music pulling, tugging, trying finally to wrench itself free from that B flat. Even when, as there, the music does wrench itself onto a new harmonic plane, there's no relief. We're still searching restlessly, obsessively for something, some resolution or escape. Yet it's striking also how well proportioned all this is. On another level, it's like watching a huge rocket go effortlessly through a complicated lift-off process, power and micro-precision engineering crucial to this movement is the huge potential that we sense almost immediately in that tiny mournful oboe motif at the beginning. That motif goes through many adventures like a tiny figure on a raft amid thunderous white water. But when we come to the recapitulation in the first movement, the point at which the opening ideas return, which again feels superbly timed, the oboe tune now on violins opens out musically and emotionally. Bye. there for me is the moment where you start to feel the pain and sadness behind the mask of defiant rage. And that's still more the case in the slow third movement, but again Walton shows his mastery as an engineer here too. The slow movement is marked con malinconia with melancholy, though again that's pretty clear from the music. It begins with a desolate but lovely flute theme, as though now admitting the loveliness of that which has been lost. that theme never quite returns in its original form again. But after the shattering grief-laden climax, just the opening phrase returns to round off the movement. It's a complete circle and an image, perhaps, of resigned acceptance. The change of tone at the beginning of the fourth movement, the finale, disconcerted many when it was heard for the first time. This wasn't helped by the fact that the symphony had first been heard the previous year incomplete, without that finale that Walton was still struggling to compose. After that original performance of the three-movement form of the symphony, Vaughan Williams is said to have told Walton that the three-movement symphony was marvellous as it was. There was no need for a finale. Why don't you just leave it as it is? But Walton knew that he needed another movement to round off the symphony properly. When this finale begins, the new mood of swelling hope and confidence, so soon after what we've just heard, can seem a bit of a jolt. was Walton doing here? After Vaughan Williams had ripped the notion of a triumphant finale to shreds in his Symphony No. 4 earlier that year, wasn't this a bit of a backward step? A retreat onto safer romantic territory, especially in such hopeless or at least troubling times? it wasn't long before explanations were sought and found. One friend put it rather succinctly. The problem, he said, was that Willie had changed girlfriends between movements. True, a blossoming new affair with the beautiful, intelligent Alice Wimborne gave Walton the strength to complete the symphony. But it seems that finale, and especially the opening music that we've just heard, was begun before Walton reached the creative impasse in the finale of his first symphony. In any case, there are strong musical connections with what's gone before. Take the oboe's tiny motive from the beginning of the symphony. Melodically, all that happens is a step up and back again. That same move is crucial to that exquisitely pained flute theme in the third movement. And now, it's the skeleton, you might say, of the finale theme. That same rising and falling step figure pervades the finale. It's patently obvious in the brass fanfare that introduces the at least outwardly triumphant coda. still hear that figure in the rhythmic snap of the brass near the end. So the emotional change for the finale of Walton's first symphony may be big, but you can't complain that the music isn't cut from the same material. It's a long way from the bleak, bitter ending of Vaughan Williams's fourth symphony. But Walton isn't Vaughan Williams. It was much more in his character to spring back from grief spectacularly in the first symphony as in life. In the music, this return to life is still complicated. There are shadows, especially in the coda, and particularly in the melancholic trumpet solo that occurs before that final flare-up we've just sampled. Yet human beings can do that, especially William Walton, it seems. You may conclude that Vaughan Williams is the greater, grimmer realist. But as Nietzsche once said, human beings also need illusion in order to live and the end of William Walton's Symphony No. 1 may just make you feel like raising a cheer for that.